have filled uh, filled out that sheet, if uh, you wouldn't mind uh, folding it over and just laying it on the pew next to yourself so you don't walk off and leave it in your Bible. We'll collect them at the conclusion of the service. Of course, you can give them to me on the way out of church, but uh, I'm concerned that they did. They end up in your Bible or in your bulletin and you take them home and I never see them again. And I need to get with it right away, so your help uh, here would be... Uh, much appreciated. And those of you that are cleaning up afterwards, don't forget to pick up those sheets and give them to me. The true Lord's Prayer is actually found in John 17. And it followed a period of intense instruction that we've been going through together in John 13, 14, 15, and 16. An evening in which Jesus spent with his disciples observing the Passover, instituting what we've come to call the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, the taking of the wine as an emblem of his shed blood on the cross. All of this was foreshadowing the fact that within hours he would be nailed to a cross and become the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The very last thing that he said that night to his disciples sort of brings the intensity to a head when he said... These things I have spoken to you. This is John 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, in a matter of hours, the world would bring all of its injustice, its power, its brutality, its cruelty... to break down the body of Jesus and to kill Jesus and to send his disciples into hiding. However, Jesus never saw himself nor his disciples as victims. So why could he speak so confidently in the face of what was coming? And that brings us to John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5 that we looked at a few weeks ago. We read, and I'm just going to take part of it here just to give you a flavor. It says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, Father, the hour has come. Speaking of the hour of his death. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. He continues, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had before you, before the world was. In these chapters that we looked at just briefly over the last few weeks, John 18, 19, and 20, we began to see that our Lord's prayer in these five verses was answered. Indeed, as he rose from the dead and made preparation to ascend into heaven, it was clear that the Father had glorified the Son and would glorify him as he returned in glory forever. However, on the evening before his suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension into the glorious presence of his Father, we read that Jesus not only prayed for himself, he prayed for his disciples. 
He prayed for himself in verses 1 to 5 of John 17. And then in verses 6 to 19, he prayed for his disciples. And you know something else? From verses 20 to 26, he prayed specifically for you and for me. This is the Lord praying to the Father. This is the Lord's prayer. And this morning, I briefly want to consider with you his prayer for his disciples. In a few weeks, we'll look at his prayer for us. But today, we're looking at his prayer for his disciples, but in reality, we're all hoping, I would trust, wanting to be good disciples. We want to be followers of Jesus Christ. We're not just believers, we're followers, or we should be. And I believe we will discover some things that should truly challenge our own hearts as believers and followers of Christ as we watch and listen to our Lord pray for his disciples. So let me read this prayer for you and see if we can lay hold of it. Jesus prays, verse 6 of John 17, I have manifested your name, and he's praying to the Father, to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given to me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Rather, I should read, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given to me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you've sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. These are very, very precious words because they're words that our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, is uttering to his own Father. They're words that reveal the things that he is concerned about in his own heart at this moment. But I confess to you because I'm a pastor when I read these words for the first time after, and I've read them many times before, but in preparation for the message, I got a little discouraged because they seem, at first glance, so far removed from our lives today. Therefore, they're difficult to apply, or at least it seemed that they would be difficult to apply to our own personal experience. 
However, as I jumped into the study of this passage with both feet, I began to see some things that both encouraged and challenged my own heart. One of the values of expository preaching, that is working through a book of scripture, of the Bible, to bring to light the truth of every passage within the book, is that you discover things that you would probably not see had you not been forced to look. Isn't that the truth? It's so much easier to turn to a passage like James 2 or James 1 or to turn over to 1 Timothy 2 and the specific things that are said there are so relevant to our life. And, and then we come to a passage like this and it just seems to be so, so difficult at first. But it forces you to look into the scripture and to consider the fact that this were, these were words that Jesus chose to speak out loud as he prayed to his Father because he wanted his disciples to hear them, that their joy might be full. And he wanted them written down, and so he inspired the writing of these words so that we have them on record for us. Obviously, he feels they're important. We need to consider them. Topical preaching is much easier because you're only looking at portions of the Bible that already speak to a subject that you're interested in. I've been preaching topically the last two Sundays. Of course, as a pastor, I know we need both. We need both approaches to the Word of God if we're going to live lives that are pleasing to God. And one goal I have always embraced as a pastor for all these years of ministry is that I might be able to say with the Apostle Paul what he said in Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders and Christians there in Ephesus. He said, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And with that said, I invite you to return with me to John 17, verses 6 to 19, and I want you to consider with me the counsel of our Lord as he prays for his disciples. And this part of the prayer, verses 6 to 19, can basically be divided into two parts. First of all, the Father's gift to the Son, verses 6 to 8. Secondly, the Son's request of the Father, verses 9 to 19. Now let's look at part one, the Father's gift to the Son. And the Father's gift to the Son is this. Men, 11 of them at this point, that's who he's praying about. But by extension, it would include men and women and all who seek to follow him. Men who have come to know and believe. And you're asking, no one believe what? Good question. We're going to look at it. Appropriately, as Jesus begins to pray for his disciples, he is always mindful that they are themselves a gift to him from the Father. Before we pray for anything, we would do well to follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ who realized and affirmed that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. Jesus himself is mindful that the very eleven disciples that he has in front of him, and that are within hearing distance of his voice, and who are listening to him pray this, this wonderful prayer, 
He is very mindful that they themselves are a gift from his Father. Listen to how he begins. I have manifested or revealed your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given to me are from you, for I have given to them the words which you gave me. And they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. The men whom you have given me. Four times in this prayer, Jesus speaks of his disciples as the Father's gift to him. Over and over again in the Gospel of John, we come across this vivid picture that when men and women come to Jesus out of this world, they are coming because the Father has sought them out, taken a hold of them, and brought them or drawn them to the Son. Jesus. Listen to these verses, and I believe they're on the screen behind me. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. John 6, 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's a point here, friends, we should never, never, never forget. We did not stumble into the arms of Jesus. No one here stumbled into the arms of Jesus. But we were embraced and brought there first by a gracious, heavenly Father. And this should fill our heart with praise. If you want to know something to give thanks for, give thanks for that. This doctrine in the Bible is called election, and it really rips a lot of people the wrong way. It was never intended to be misused as it's been done. But you know what it is intended to do? Put us on our knees so that we say, thank you, God. Thank you for your work in my life. For bringing me to a point where I would see the light and believe it and become part of your family. Thank you, Father. It's your work from beginning to end. Praise God. Jesus says, I have manifested or revealed your name. In response to the fact that God has given these disciples to Jesus, Jesus says, I've revealed your name to them. That is your character, your nature, the very being of God. I've revealed them to you. Later on, he will say, I have given to them the words which you have given to me. He revealed the Father to his disciples by giving them the Father's words. Words he spoke, words he taught, words he lived. Now on your note sheet, you'll find on the first page a wonderful little excerpt there from a commentary about knowing how the name of God is revealed by Jesus and how we should reveal the name of God in the way we live as well. I encourage you at a later time to read that. It will be an encouragement to your heart. But moving on through the passage, Jesus also says this, and they have kept your word. I've revealed your name. I've laid out your word for them. I've fleshed it out. 
I've spoken it and I've taught it. And you know something, dear Heavenly Father, they have kept your word. The word keep here means to observe, pay attention, or heed. They listened and they observed carefully what Jesus said and what he did. And they responded thoughtfully to his revelation of the Father in word and deed. And as they did, do you know what happened? Verse 7, Jesus continues spelling all this out for his Father. Obviously, his Father knows all things. But he's reviewing all this because in reviewing it, it's helping to communicate the depths of his concern and his heart and his love. Verse 7, this is where all this is going. Now they, now, as a result of, of hearing and observing and responding to what I've said, they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. They've known that. Everything given to Jesus comes ultimately from the Father. And here are these eleven disciples and they're thinking about his mission, his authority, his teaching. It's all from the Father. How did they come to know this? Verse 8 continues. For I have given to them the words which you have given to me. And they have received them. And as a result, we could add, and have known surely, without a doubt, that I came from you. That I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Now, I'm getting to something that's very important. And I know some may be thinking, what's going on here? Listen to this carefully at this point. They have received what Jesus revealed and have become certain about the origin of Jesus, that he came from God the Father. Furthermore, they have not only become convinced about his origin, they've also become convinced about his relationship. He didn't just come from the Father. He came to the Father. He was sent from the Father to represent the Father. That he has a special relationship to the Father as the Son of God. This is something they came to believe as he discipled them. Jesus makes this very clear. Now these three verses may seem to be a little, a little hard to get into. But after hearing our Lord speak them, we might be tempted to say, okay, what's the point? Is there something here that you know, intersects with my life as a believer, as a disciple of Jesus? It's here. It's simply this. First and foremost, our Lord Jesus Christ values what we know and believe about Him. About the Father. About our Lord's mission. About His authority. About His teaching. But we can move on and talk about, about the Holy Spirit. About the church. About the riches of divine grace. About the end of the age. First and foremost, our Lord cares about the content of our faith. What do we know and believe about Him? This is what He most wants to camp on. This is what He's impressed with about His disciples. If we were to ask what our Lord most wants to see when it comes to our faith, I think many of us would be tempted to say... Works. 
After all, faith without works is dead. Useless. Works are indeed the fruit of faith. That's James' point. As disciples, we should be producing works. But when it comes to faith itself, what our Lord values most is not the fruit. First and foremost, what He values most is the content of the faith. What do we really believe? You see, we put the emphasis on faith. A lot of people get into it. What do we mean here? Is it head faith, heart faith? What kind of faith are we talking about? Faith is faith. The question is, what do we believe? The content of the faith. And that's what's impressing Jesus at this moment. Is that as he looks at his disciples, I mean, they were going to fail him in a moment. Works-wise, they still had a long ways to go. But one thing that impressed our Savior was the fact that the disciples had faith that had content. They knew where He came from. They knew that He had a relationship with the Father. They began to see the bigger picture as well as the the things that He had been teaching them. When a person becomes a Christian to begin with, Jesus put the emphasis not on simply, do you believe? In anything, as we do today, it's just nice that you have a faith. Isn't that wonderful? We've got people that believe in Buddha. We've got people that believe in, in uh, this religion and that religion and Allah and so forth. And It's just wonderful people believe. No. What's wonderful is that they believe something clear and truthful. Specifically that they have a content in their faith that is saving. If your content isn't what it should be, you are not going to see eternity with the pres- in the presence of God. Jesus said very clearly, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. The content of that is him. It's Jesus. Jesus told the woman at the well of Samaria, he says, If you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who it is that saith unto you, Give me to drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you eternal life, everlasting life. So clear. We've got to know who He is. We've got to know what He offers. That's the initial content of faith. But it goes on from there and we keep building the content. Building the content. And the more we build it, the more pleased our Lord is. And that's where some of us have gotten astray. Earl Rodmacher makes a note in this particular passage in his book on discipleship, or disciple-maker, it's entitled. And he writes this, It is important to notice that what Jesus points to is not deeds, but beliefs. He identifies faith in terms of its content, what it assents to, not in terms of what it does. Jesus does not say they are living obediently. Rather, he says they recognize as true and acknowledge the right things. We must not forget that Christ is not writing a theology here. But he is discipling his men who are going to be the pillars of the church. We need to learn from his role model. We need to remember, too, that we can only receive as much as we believe. And we can only believe as much as we know. We must remember, too, that here, when Jesus describes his disciples in terms of their faith, it is what they believe that he focuses on, not how that faith is expressed that is the fruit of obedience. Even so, our actions are the fruit of our deepest thoughts. If we want to change a person's deeds, we need to change their thinking. Though faith may produce good works, James 2 teaches this, faith is an attitude, a conviction, 
not a deed, and thus not a work. And remember, it is faith that saves, not our works. My point here, friends, is that we need to be about, as disciples of Christ, our first order of business should be to begin and continue and continue to build a content of faith. The scriptures even talk about the faith once for all delivered to the saints, referring to the concept that faith is, is to be full of content. We call that Christian doctrine, Christian truth. We're a Bible church. We put a lot of emphasis on that. We have an Oana program. We teach our children Bible teaching, Bible truth, that they can begin to build their content of faith. We host a Bible study fellowship uh, group in our church because we believe it's good for people to get into the Word of God and to begin to build those, those foundational principles. We put an emphasis on basic discipleship. I have a theology study that I, that I basically try to help a person put a framework in their faith so that they can begin to put things together. All of this is designed to build the content of faith, but we need to keep going. We can't just quit. We need to listen carefully when we're in church or when anybody is opening the Word of God. We need to get more sleep on Saturday night. We need to take notes. We need to mark in our Bible. We need to ask questions. I always value the person that has the courage to call me up and say, I don't understand this passage. Can you help me? Or what do you think God says about this particular problem? I value that. That's wonderful. Do it. You'll never find that I will shirk away from that opportunity. Remember, when it comes to his 11 disciples... What he valued first and foremost was not how many souls they had won to Christ. They hadn't won any yet, really. Nor how many widows and orphans they'd visited. What he valued first, as important as those things are, what he valued first and foremost was what they believed. After calling attention to the Father's gift to the Son, that is, men who have come to know and believe, Jesus moves on in his prayer to make requests for these the Father has given him. That brings us to part two, the son's request, verses 9 to 19. And Jesus says in verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. Now right there when he says that, that throws some real curveballs for people. It's like, doesn't he care about the world anymore? Certainly he cares about the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But his point is, is that reaching the world is going to be reached not by simply prayer. It's going to be reached by disciples who've been prayed for, who go forth and carry the news, who carry the, the truth of the gospel to the world that they might believe it and be saved. Nowhere in this prayer does Jesus pray for the world. In fact, as one person noted, actually, and I'm quoting, actually there is not a place in Scripture where Christ or any of the apostles ever prayed for the salvation of a specific lost person. This is quite a contrast to the typical evangelical praying today. Doesn't that take you sort of off guard? I mean, don't that what we always pray for? I remember we had at one time a number of ladies in our church who had lost husbands. 
And we were praying for those lost husbands. Now, that's not wrong. But it's interesting that that is not emphasized at all in Scripture. But it's, well, here's what's interesting, is that when one person finally does become a believer, we stop praying for them. Now they're in. They've signed up. They've said, I believe. They have eternal life. That's the end of it. Or wrong. That's the beginning of it. That's when we should be praying, according to Scripture, or the example of Scripture. It's not that God does not care about the world. It's that God's strategy for reaching the world is through disciples, through followers. And we need to pray for believers that they will become followers, that they will become challenged and want to go forth and make disciples as they have become disciples. Prayer needs to be primarily focused on those who have believed that they will become disciples representing the Lord Jesus Christ in the world. It is in their representation of him that he is glorified. This is what our Lord Jesus Christ has and continues to pray for. Those of us who have believed that we might become all that God wants us to become in this world. You know, there's a couple other illustrations or passages. Romans 8.34, we have a passage where it says, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore who is risen, who is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Therefore he, referring to Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost. The idea here is speaking about our salvation beyond just our eternal salvation. But to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is praying for you and I right now. He's praying for our lives. That we might go forth and be all that he would want us to be and to be the disciples that we should be. He prays for us. And he prays specifically in two ways. Now, when prayer is given, you pray specifically. Here's Jesus' specific request to the Father. Number one, first, Holy Father, keep them. Especially keep them from the evil one who has shaped the world and who uses it to control the minds and lives of people. Keep them from that, Father. Now, I'm going to read through this and just to shorten the message a little bit. I'm going to add some things as I go to help clarify, but I'm basically going to come back to the main thing that I want to emphasize here. Verse 11. This particular portion goes from verse 11 forward to, I believe, verse 14. Now, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father, keep, and the word here for keep means to protect and preserve through careful oversight, in your name, that is in the realm of your sovereign power and authority, those whom you have given to me, that they may be one. And the oneness here is a unity around the same truth, the same purpose, and the same love that the Father and the Son share for each other. That they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them. I protected them and preserved them in your name, in the realm of your sovereign power and authority. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, that is, in this case, the word kept means guarded. It's a different word. I have guarded, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, 
who was never really in the ball game to begin with because he's a son of perdition, that is, a son of destruction. That is, he reflects the character, which is basically a character of unbelief, of those who are headed for eternal damnation, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, Holy Father. These things I speak in the world, in their physical hearing, these disciples that are next to me, that, that, that may, they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves, knowing that I'm praying for them. Doesn't it encourage our hearts to know that Jesus is praying for us? Because one thing for sure, if Jesus is praying for you and me, we know his prayers are going to be answered. And we know his prayer here for his disciples will be answered, and I'm sure that was a thrill to their heart. He continues, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep, again, protect and preserve them from the evil one. The one who has shaped this world and who uses it to control the minds and lives of people. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, the Lord's Prayer here, applying these, this passage of Scripture, the Lord's Prayer reveals a very serious burden or concern in his heart. It's not for the world, but it's in keeping his own people, his own disciples from being caught up in the world. That's what he's burdened about here. If you want to put your finger right on what the Lord is concerned about is that the world... Well, that his disciples, his 11 disciples, and by extension, all of us who want to be his disciples, is that we will get caught up in the world. And he's praying to his Father to keep them from getting caught up in the world. A world, the Bible says, is cradled in the lap of the evil one, Satan himself. In view of this, I think we need to take a long, hard look at just how caught up in the world we are. Just how much is the world hindering us from becoming all God wants us to be. How much of the world is in me? A question I really don't want to ask. But here's some hard questions I've asked of myself, and maybe you would want to ask them of yourself. Is the world keeping us? Or has the world enticed us to the point that we have no time or money or even energy left to give our Lord? Are we so busy that God and his people have been effectively pushed out of our lives? Is the world controlling our minds with its enticing appeals, its vile images, and or its addictive substances which have made it difficult, if not impossible, to seriously consider and think the thoughts of God? How can we break out of such a world? Is the world keeping us from Sunday school and church, from Bible studies, from other opportunities of, of getting involved in the Word of God? How can we start down a path that will lead us to victory in our Christian life? When it comes to disciples, what is God's antidote to the world? I think every one of us here wants to be a, an effective disciple. But the world is, is causing us to stumble. I think every one of us have stumbled in some sense, in the sense that the world has caught us. It certainly caught me. In numbers of ways. I can look and say, you know, there's too much television. 
I watch too much. Fortunately, I've been asking some programs that I used to watch because it just sucks too much time. It's the world. And then when we watch things on the world or we read a magazine or we do this or that, we begin to think like the world. And so we have to think more critically. We can't just let things slide. What is the antidote for the world? How are God's people to overcome the world as they seek to reach reach the world with the truth of God? That takes us to the second basic request that our Lord had for His Father. A very specific request. And it's very simple. Sanctify them. Sanctify them. First, keep them. Second, sanctify them. Keep them from the world. From being caught up in it. But second, sanctify them by your truth. The word sanctify means to be set apart. It's one of those, you hear people say, oh, it's sanctification. You and I know that that word is, flies right on by 99% of us. We don't, I never use that word in everyday conversation. But it's in the scripture, and we need to at least touch it. In fact, I often just forget the English word sanctify, and I just translate set apart. It makes more sense. Because the word sanctify means to be set apart. To be set apart from evil to the service of God or the work of God. In our Lord's Prayer, this prayer here, it refers to the setting apart of His disciples from the evil of the world to the service and work of God as apostles. In a short time, He's going to send them forth as apostles to go into the world and take the the truth of God to the world. But before that can happen, they need to be set apart. They need to be sent to witness and represent the Lord, but they first need to be set apart. As John Mitchell put it in his commentary, he says, A holy life in a world that hates God is God's program for his people. Such a life depends upon the truth of God. The word holy is the word related to sanctify, meaning to set apart. This is God's program for us. Our sanctification is what God is working on in all of our lives at this time. He wants to set us apart. How? By your truth. By God's truth. And that's how we're set apart. Where do we come to understand the truth of God? We need and we operate on the basis of truth. Those of you that are in investments, you make decisions that affect what you will invest in based on truth. As Christians, we have to have truth if we're going to live effectively for God. But where do we find the truth? Thy word is truth. What God has said is truth. And where do we find it? We find it in His word, in the Scriptures. For it is in the Scriptures that we come to know the truth about the Father, about the Son, about the Holy Spirit, about the world, about the flesh, about the devil. About man, about sin, about salvation, about justification and redemption and reconciliation and propitiation and glorification and about our inheritance and our eternal reward and all that we hope for. Where do we find out all these things that help us live the Christian life? We find them from the Word of God. Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, O Father, to declare your name, your nature, your character. I have sent them into the world to declare my name, my nature, to be my witnesses, to be my ambassadors. But first, he says, 
And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. He's speaking here of the cross. And before his disciples, or before you or I, can be effectively set apart for the work of God, first we need to be cleansed. And the only way we can be cleansed is through the the blood of Christ, which was shed for us on the cross. And so we come back to the point that our sanctification depends upon his sanctification. Jesus himself said, I'm setting myself apart for the work of becoming the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This work without the truth that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he arose again on the third day, according to the scriptures, without that, our sanctification is impossible. The wonderful portion of scripture. But where do we end up? When people pray, you find out quickly what they really care about. You sometimes hear people say, well, you find out how they spend their money. Let me look in their checkbook and I can tell you what they really value in life. I don't know about you, but I've wasted a lot of money in my life. I've spent some money on some stupid things. You can't tell everything about me and what I value by looking at my checkbook. Now, that may sound like a nice statement to look in someone's checkbook to find out what they really value, but I think a lot of us don't spend our money very wisely. If you want to really know what I value, you should listen to me pray. And if I want to know what you value, I should listen to you pray. If I could somehow just sort of come alongside of you as you're talking to God, the Father, and you're pouring out your heart, I'll find out what you value. Good weather for a picnic today. Financial freedom. Good health. A good job. The right mate. Getting into the right college. Finding the right job. Finding a better job. Deliverance from a terrible disease. Deliverance from a terrible habit. The list could go on and on and on. I'm sure you could enlighten me. Likewise, when our Lord Jesus Christ prayed in John 17, we quickly learn what he cares about most. I think so much of us think of Jesus and somehow, because we know he's God, he's a stephos, he's apart from us, and yet the Bible teaches that he's one of us, that he was, in, that he was created in a human being, that in his human body he had a point in time when he began. As the Son of God, he's forever. But the Son of God became a man. And when this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, both, poured out his heart, we can really see what he cared about most as he talked to his Father. This is what he cared about. He cared about God being glorified. He cared about God being glorified. He cares about the content of our faith. What we truly know and what we believe. He cares about the content of our faith. He cares about the keeping us from, the, from being caught up in the world. He cares about our sanctification, about our spiritual effectiveness, as, and about our success as ambassadors to a lost world. He cares about our reception of the Word of God, that we might know the truth of God. 
truth that can truly set us free, that to be all that God wants us to be. Truth that can set us apart to be ambassadors to a lost world. These are the things our Lord Jesus cares about. And the question I want to close with is a question for all of us and me as well. How closely do we share his concerns and his cares? Our gracious God and Father, I pray that you would...